0: before we we start talking about this song i think rob should mention what he named the focus list that he shared with us this week which <laughs> is just
1: <laughs> i called it frank is sad <laughs> Another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It is the podcast where lifelong friends and musicians break down classic albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We're going to do a deep dive on the background of the artist, talk about how the record was made, where the artist was at in their career, go into the specific songs, chop those up from a musician's point of view, and at the end of all this... We are going to vote on whether or not you actually needed to hear this record before you died. This week, as you know, because you clicked, we're going to be talking about Frank Sinatra's in the wee small hours of the morning. Very, very excited to get into that and to announce our cast for the day of musicians who are going to be complaining about Frank Sinatra. Before we do, let's play a quick clip from the title track and also the first track on this album the song is called in the wee small hours of the morning
2: in the wee small hours of the morning while the whole wide world is fast asleep you lie awake and think about the girl and never ever think of counting she
1: when you okay. Now that you have a sense for what we've been listening to this week, we're going to play more clips as we go along, so don't worry if you're not familiar with the record. But let's get right into the hot takes. We're going to throw it around the room and introduce everybody by way of some tweet-length reviews of this Frank Sinatra album. And for that, I'm
0: going to throw it first to my co-host, Adam. Hey, everybody. This is Adam. And so the year's 1955. The average cost of a house was around $11,000. A new car cost about 1900 a black-and-white TV cost about 100 and this album would have set you back about $1.25. That same year, a shot of cheap booze cost $0.17, cents, meaning that in 1955, you could make the decision between seven stiff drinks or one sappy album. Either way, you'll probably wind up with a headache and regretting your choice. <laughs> oh, man. Excellent.
1: Excellent. Okay, we're going to throw it over to longtime pal and often contributor, Marty. Hey,
3: thanks for having me again. My tweet length review is this. In the wee small hours, Frank Sinatra picks a theme and sticks with it, choosing sad and lonely song titles that you might expect to find on a Morrissey album. And while this might be the first time these two names have been used in the same sentence, they share an ability as singers to connect us with common human experiences. And Frank certainly does that on this album.
1: Excellent. Nice. Excellent. Looking forward to a riveting discussion. This is Rob here. My tweet-length review is, middle-aged, career in free fall, and feeling heartbroken, Frank Sinatra manages to invent a new art form known as the album, and a new musical genre, sad bastard music.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I had sad bastard flying around in my head a little bit as well this week. He leans, leans into it. He leans into it big time, yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this one.
1: It's been, what is this episode? We're up in the hundreds now. But this is, we should say, the first entry in the book, chronologically. The first entry in Robert DiMari's Thousand Albums. Oh, no way. You must hear it before you die. It's literally on page one because the book is ordered chronologically. And so I wanted to, and also Frank Sinatra, obviously a very important artist. So as listeners have come to expect, I read a Frank Sinatra tome this week, a biography by a guy called... James Kaplan, and it was just entitled The Voice. It actually only covered sort of the first half of Sinatra's career, but I'm excited to tell you about some of the background and why this album is significant in the timeline of music and also where it fits in Frank's career. So let's let's go back, but I encourage you guys to interrupt me because I learned a lot of cool stuff this week. I don't know a lot about, or I didn't before, know a lot about Frank Sinatra or his music. I had heard some of the material in passing, of course, so we'll talk about that. Let's talk first about how Frank became famous. So, first of all, he's born way back in 1915. He's kind of older than I think I would have thought he was. Yeah.
0: I don't know why. I mean, it would make sense that this album came out in 55, but for some reason, I thought he was that, you know, uh, young faced kid in 1955. I've seen pictures of really old or really young Sinatra, but you're telling me he's. He's not a spring chicken? No, not at all. Not
1: even a little bit. In fact, this record, as we're going to see, becomes a kickoff to the second phase of his career, a comeback, if you will. And really, most of the material that he's best known for happens after this. But okay. let's let's talk about it. Let's try to set the scene, because we're talking about an era so long ago when Frank Sinatra first came on the scene and started singing professionally the music industry was clearly just in a totally different place. What was popular was totally different. It's just, it's hard now, 90 years on, to really... Did You You said it was 1955? He was born in 15, so he started okay. singing professionally and started becoming a sensation in the late 30s, early 40s. This record uh, okay. didn't come out until 55, which is significantly later, so he's almost 40 years old at that time.
0: That's just crazy. I mean, pre-World War II, yeah. it's so... Long ago, that's just wild to even think that there there was a music industry. In my head, it's you know. What I mean? Well, it was it was really different. And here's one of the y'all. I'm kind of going
1: on a, on a chronological bent here. So if you sure. can imagine that, imagine that this is not too long after microphones were first being used for on stage performance. Wow. Right? They weren't really starting to be used on stage until about 1930. And another thought is in the pre microphone era. There was no vocal subtlety, right? Singers were good singers because they could shout and reach the back of the room. Volume was the main judgment of a person's voice, right? Volume and bombast. These are guys like Al Jolson. Because they had no microphone. They just had this orchestra behind them or some kind of band. Wow. And they had to effectively shout over them to be heard, right? So the tide is turning. you know. So Frank's basically 15 years old when microphones get into some level of common use, And as he's coming up, as he's like a teenager and he's thinking about maybe being a singer, the main guy is Bing Crosby. That's like Frank's idol. And they say that Bing Crosby, he was a singing sensation. He's about 10 or 15 years older than Frank, something in that realm. But he was really one of the first singers to take advantage of the microphone era by adding his own personality to the singing, right? His personality comes through in the vocal. You get these like nuances of emotion, and um, frankly, like a more casual tone. And Frank, I think, learned a lot from that. He listened to Bing Crosby all the time when he was a
0: teenager and, and sort of growing up. So now that's interesting because Bing Crosby I only know from musicals that came out in the 40s and 50s. But he actually had albums of where he's singing stuff, right? We're going to get to the albums thing, because okay, one of the things okay. about
1: We Small Hours is that it really could be considered the first album as we currently know it, although that term wow. was in use back then, but it meant something a little different. We're we're going to get to that. Okay. So Frank is born and raised in Hoboken, New Jersey. It's right across the river from New York. And just to get you again in the time period and what other artists were going on, right? He's listening to Bing Crosby on the radio. He's a huge national star, this is now the mid 30s. If you can picture when Frank Sinatra is like 1920, he's first starting to go out, drink, engage with music, maybe starting to sing in a couple bands. He's going across the river to Manhattan, where on any given night in the clubs of Manhattan, you can see Billie Holiday, Art Tatum, Count Basie, Fats Waller, just playing at all these tiny clubs. That's crazy. So and he's actually the same age, just about the exact same age as Billie Holiday. So he's a huge fan of Billie Holiday too. And Eventually kind of got to know her. But at first he's a kid, he kind of gets a little bit of a late start, at least as a musician, and is trying to kind of break in, trying to figure out what he wants to do. Right. So he does start singing professionally in his early 20s, kind of fights
0: his way into a group only because he has a car. Right. And they they don't want him in there. Funny enough, that, that is a requirement that still holds holds today. You got a car, you're in. But I suck, doesn't matter. You got wheels. <laughs> yeah, many of the the weakest
3: members of bands have <laughs> have gotten in the door because of that. So that time, had he had any sort of formal vocal training? Did he sing in church? Did he sing no. anywhere? Okay. No, they say that he, he enjoyed singing as a little parlor
1: trick, like at family events, but... No one really thought he was a great singer. In fact, when he went and auditioned for some of these touring dinner theater bands around New York, they weren't really that impressed. Combined with the fact, you know we love to talk about artists' appearances, he's not actually a very handsome guy, and he's quite small. He's 5'7". Oh, wow. Which is is a little weird, and he's a little goofy looking. And unfortunately, not his fault, but when he was born, the doctor had to use forceps to pull him out. Like, he almost died during birth. And so, as a result of that, he's got a big scar running down the left side of his face. Like, they called him Scarface in school. And so, if you'll notice that in pictures, really throughout the rest of his life, he's rarely, if ever, photographed from the left side he's very self-conscious about it
3: wild yeah
1: so you know he was kind of a goofy looking guy he's also we must say he's italian and that was not a
0: a thing to be in the
1: <laughs> 1930s they talk about basically <laughs> right. if your name ended with a vowel back then you changed it you hit it it was not you <laughs> right. were fully non-white non-american full immigrant and treated as a second-class citizen effectively right wow So that is actually a big part of kind of his personality. I mean, we know his big part of his personality is to be Italian and to be involved in Italian culture. Everyone who knows Sinatra probably knows a bit of that. But he's got this like underdog mentality because back in those days, you know, there were stores. It was acceptable to have stores that just had signs like no Italians, you know, crazy, crazy to think of now. But anyway, so he starts singing professionally. He kind of bops around in a few bands and he eventually gets hired as the front of Tommy Dorsey's orchestra, which was like a big band. It was a big gig at the time. This is 1940 now. It was a huge gig for him. Buddy Rich was the drummer.
0: Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that name. I've just referenced it in passing. No, nothing about it. Tommy Dorsey. Well, the era, what was popular then
1: was big bands, right? It was still this because it's still kind of pre small jazz bands. It's a little it's slightly pre bebop. If you think about it, bebop, was really just about to take off around 1940, 1941, with guys like Charlie Parker and Monk and Dizzy Gillespie playing in these small clubs in Harlem. So that, what was popular then, was more like the Duke Ellington Orchestra, or the Count Basie. The Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller. Right, okay. Right, and Tommy Dorsey was one of these guys, and he also was kind of like a template for the personality of how Frank would be. He was a taskmaster. He He was a tough band leader, He was the, you know, kind of a tough guy. He's he's an Irishman, but he's sort of a tough guy personality. And I think Frank learned a lot from him during his stay. And during that period, right, he records a bunch of stuff as Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. One of the more interesting things I saw, and I sent you guys these songs on our focus list, is that he manages to kind of lap his idol, Bing Crosby, who's 12 years older than him, at this, there's this real cool moment that you can hear, which is they record the same song. That is Frank Sinatra singing for the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra and Bing Crosby. And the songs are recorded within four days of each other. No way. The song is called Trade Winds. But if you go and listen to these two versions, you can hear the era passing by. Like the Bing Crosby version sounds like it's out of a silent movie, almost.
2: Down where the trade winds play Where you lose a day.
1: Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, yep. right, right. And Frank's just automatic, it still sounds old, because of course now it's like 85 years old still, but <laughs> it definitely sounds like a new era of hipper, more casual, more modern music.
2: Done where the trade winds play. down where you lose a
1: day we found a new world so it's just 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 coincidence that they happen to do that but he's it's it's showing that you know this new music is coming in and he's kind of on the front wave of it right so he gets noticed there he gets this great manager and just like Elvis and a lot of great people the manager that backs him up is a huge part of creating the mythos Of this guy. He's on his way up, but he needs marketing. So this guy, George Evans, comes in and he does a couple things. One, he brands him as simply the voice. Oh, all right. Very effective. And listen, I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk extensively about Sinatra's voice. But even at that time, he was considered something new in the sense that he had kind of arrogance and vulnerability at the same time. He had this tough guy persona and even a look. He looks like he's been knocked around a little bit. And he was a scrapper. He got into a bunch of fights throughout his life. And yet he's able to kind of croon and be sort of soft. You know, mainly his fans at this time were women, especially teenage women. They were just all over him. It was the it was that period you that you were looking at in Bugs Bunny cartoons where everyone's just like fainting and throwing right. roses on the stage. Right. The other thing his manager told him to do. As a stage trick, which this is pretty classic. Treat the mic stand, the mic and the mic stand, like a woman.
0: Caress it.
1: Dance with it. Make it into a whole pseudo-sexual thing.
0: And man, did it work. Man, this manager is worth every penny he was paying him. Seriously, dude. (laughs) He's ahead of his game, man, or ahead of the time. Well, not only that, but he pays
1: girls sometimes to go scream at the shows. There were were already girls screaming, but he, like, stacks the
0: deck, right? That's awesome. So
3: before Elvis, before the Beatles, you know, where you see these videos of just screaming women, you know, was there anyone else that did that before Frank Sinatra? No, he was kind of the first mania and we're going to get into
1: kind of the money he was making at that time it's as he's in his kind of mid-20s there maybe up to 30 and this is a good segue into our favorite segment by the numbers so here's frank sinatra by the numbers 16 is the first number i want to talk about that's the age at which frank sinatra dropped out of high school never to return five seven i already mentioned frank's height he's a (laughs) very slight man which, given his outsized personality, one might be surprised about now that said, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that he is renowned for having a very large penis
0: <laughs> oh wow that I didn't
1: know i yeah i didn't did not did not know
0: the manager started kind of floating that, had him put the the cucumber in his pants kind of <laughs> no
1: apparently that was mostly well first of all, he had many many affairs throughout his sure. entire life, including. He was married pretty much the entire time, but he was world class cocksman the entire time. <laughs> but no, I think I think a lot of that comes from a quote from one of his wives, Ava Gardner, who's going to figure into the story of We Small Hours, who was an actress and a, a big star at the time. She said something to the effect of, "Frank's only one hundred and ten pounds, but a hundred pounds of it is cock."
0: <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Man, that's a that's a loving wife right there. So <laughs> to float that out. Right. That's great. So,
1: you could tell he was a huge star and they didn't even quite know what to do with him. Like the whole machine was of entertainment was a lot different back then. But 7 is the next number I want to focus you on. That's the number of years of a major Hollywood contract he was offered despite the fact that he had never acted or danced on stage ever. Before they were just like, let's just start putting him in movies. We don't know what else to do.
0: Seven years of movies, yes. sight unseen. Well, not sight unseen. They see him, but they have no idea if he has the ability to act or. And he doesn't do anything. He, I assure right. you, he doesn't. And the movies
1: are just <laughs> terrible. Like they were just. It was like they were just turning out movies and excuses to put a familiar face. Maybe maybe he'd just be playing a song, or maybe he did have one movie where Gene Kelly and him were dancing. They were sailors in New York. Kind of a famous movie, but Gene Kelly's definitely the star. He says sure. he kind of learned how to dance from that, but he definitely didn't know what he was doing. He's just kind of wandering through the picture. But he's such a <laughs> hot star that they're like anything that has Frank Sinatra's name attached to it works, right? Mm hmm. So let's talk money. 844000 That's the reported income of Frank Sinatra in 1942. And it's. Oh my. It's like an ungodly God. amount of money. Ungodly mm-hmm. amount of money.
0: He, that was like the. <laughs> The budget of the U.S. military
3: going
1: into <laughs> World War II. Exactly. Holy, Holy crap. It equates to over $10 million in today's money, wow. and it kept going up for several years. So he's on this meteoric rise. He was almost certainly the highest paid entertainer ever and in the world at that time. All right, I'll give you a couple more as we roll into We Small Hours. 118. That's pounds. How skinny Frank Sinatra was when he attempted suicide by slitting one wrist shortly before recording this album. Shit. And he actually had multiple suicide attempts, which I was surprised to learn. Wow. Damn. Around this time. So you're going to see a little bit of where this depressive mood comes from. Because he was legit broken up and struggled quite a bit, and he got down to a really low, 118 pounds, even for a guy that size, is really
0: low. Yeah, I was going to say, even if you're 5'7", that is, yeah, waif-like. That's gaunt,
1: yeah. And we already mentioned it, but 39, Sinatra's age when he records this, which, frankly, isn't that too far from our age?
0: I was going to say, yeah.
1: I really did think he would have been much more of a spring chicken. So now let's talk about the era of his career that this leads up to. So as we said, right, Frank was high as high can be, but he starts falling off in the late 40s. He's struggling to book gigs, getting press coverage. It's for a variety of reasons. Part of it is the musical mood is starting to move on. Part of it is his audience of teenage girls are growing up. Part of it is the fact that he's Italian and McCarthy's doing his starting his McCarthy hearings on un-American committee on un-American activities and he kind of has connections with the organized crime and he went and he hangs out in Havana with some of these guys and he's Italian and so he might be a communist. He's getting bad press coverage. And Another aspect of it is that he effectively dodges the draft and avoids going to World War II.
0: I was going to ask what happened to him in what, uh, you know, 41 through 46. Allegedly, he
1: pays a doctor to mark him as 4F status, meaning ineligible for service, but he gets a lot of crap for it in the press. All the men in America kind of start having disdain for him and this is like this is part of how he kind of starts to go over the hump. He just gets worse and worse coverage. He's getting older. His hairline starts receding, right? He's
0: now up into his, in his mid thirties. And it's just sort of not working as it used to. You think about some of the stars who in that era who famously went and served. And again, you know, whether or not they were just given a post in some, you know, beautiful island. But, you know, you got Jimmy Stewart, who's in that line. Elvis, I think, yeah. right? Didn't he take a break from yeah, his career?
3: Joe DiMaggio, you know, a lot of baseball players right, went over. right.
0: So that was definitely a source of honor. So I can see why that probably rubbed people at the time the wrong way.
3: Yeah, for sure.
1: And it was a weird time to be a minority and... Uh, he's very liberal uh, from an early time, at a time when like most entertainers were not necessarily outwardly political or liberal. Part of it was because he was Italian, and he felt like this oppressed minority. So even in those early days, at a time when it was very uncool, he was giving opportunities to guys like Sammy Davis, who was like way, way younger than him, and hugging him publicly on stage and giving him high-paying gigs and things like that at a time when that was not... Really cool, and a lot of the American public were a little suspect of that, let's say. Hmm. Oh, I should also mention that he sort of had a feud with William Randolph Hearst. He paled around with Sinatra, that is, paled around with Orson Welles, who you probably know made Citizen Kane, which is a pretty obvious reference to William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper magnate. And Hearst was a famous Republican, and he didn't like his portrayal of Citizen Kane. And, he, you know, he's sort of anti-communist anti-democrat kind of guy. And so that he controlled a lot of the newspapers in America. So there would be, they kind of helped with his downfall. Let's say that. Now wow. we should also mention that Frank himself was a kind of an unreliable wild card, pretty much the whole time. It's certainly after he got money and things went to his head, he would show up late for gigs or blow things off entirely. You know, he was a
0: little unreliable with how he conducted himself, let's say. And that continued. Yeah. I have this, this vision in my head of Phil Hartman, on SNL, doing his Frank Sinatra, you know, with the drink in hand and just shouting at people with a cigar in the other hand, and that's I have, you know, the the t- the reality of Frank Sinatra and Phil Hartman's version overlap <laughs> in my brain sometimes. So it's probably not the most charitable take on him, but I think he was definitely grumpy, kind of from an from an early
1: time, and had a ch- definitely had a chip on his shoulder about a lot of things, and was a scrapper, like I said. So probably none of that helped. Now, we haven't talked about his personal life yet, but I don't know the exact year he got married to his sort of neighborhood sweetheart, whose name is Nancy. And they had three kids, one of whom is Nancy Sinatra, who became a singer herself, named after her mother. And But during all this time, he was just having rampant affairs left and right. And they'd always fight and reunite. And it was a whole thing. And part of it was that they were Catholic and divorce was not It was completely taboo, right? And so everything Mm -hmm. was kind of hush-hush, but he was not hush-hush about his affairs, right? So that was another thing. He would pop up in the tabloids for being out at some club at the Copacabana with some other woman, some starlet, whatever. And Nancy would typically forgive him. That went on for like 10 years, right? But eventually, they agree that to call it quits and get a divorce. But the real reason they do that is because Frank is ready to marry someone else. So it's like oh, it's like 10 man. days later after the divorce is Je- finalized. Oh Jesus. He he marries this woman called Ava Gardner. So let's talk about her. She was a big star at the time, big actress. He meets Ava Gardner. They're already I'm sure having an affair. They have this like really wild, hot and cold romance. The I read that the first night they actually got together. They had kind of circled each other because they were both married to other people. And so they knew who each other were because they ran in some of the same circles. But the first night they really got together, they got super drunk in Palm Springs and drove out to Indio, California, now home of Coachella. And they decided to wake everyone up in this small town by shooting out a bunch of traffic lights.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Then they get arrested, both of them. Right, right, okay. Then a guy drives
3: up with a briefcase full of cash, I think something like $30,000, to keep it out of the press and get them out of jail. <laughs> so, wait, so is that the famous Frank Sinatra mug shot? you know cause no. they, okay okay that's not that okay. that
1: that actually comes earlier no he was arrested oh, okay. multiple times this oh, one actually okay. <laughs> stayed completely out of the books because gotcha. of the cash wow. because he had money all right all right i think i think the earlier mugshot i can't remember i think it must have been a fight though i okay. i heard several stories of fights where the cops got involved gotcha because gotcha.
0: he was way young in that one i know the photo you're talking about he yeah. looks like he's 17 or something okay yeah
1: so point of the story is and we are leading up to we small hours he the relationship that they have is crazy hot and cold classic yelling at each other all the time and then makeup and people describe Ava Gardner as this beautiful nihilist she's she was kind of a wild person and like I said she was an actress in a bunch of big movies she was very well known at the time and so they're being photographed like everywhere they go people are, are following it he had a posse traveling with him at all times of course so they would report that They'd have this big fight where they'd be yelling, throwing dishes at each other and stuff. Oh, my gosh. And then, they'd, and then he'd, like, come downstairs while she cooled off. And then when she cooled off, she'd let him know by spraying her perfume on the staircase. And he'd, like, get a whiff of it and, like, know You're to like, run back up there oh, no, so they could have just, makeup sex. That's so funny. <laughs> it's like some real Animal Kingdom type shit. Wow. So, anyway, but what's going on here is, right, his star is kind of ri- uh, falling and hers is rising. And they continue to cheat on each other pretty much constantly because they're they're jet setting.
0: Are they roughly the same age at this point? No, she's got to be younger. But I don't I don't know off the top of my head. Let's say she was born in twenty two, seven years younger than him. OK.
1: All right. And I, I got to admit, I don't really know her or any of her films but she's she was in a bunch of big productions at the time.
0: Yeah, I was looking through her discog- discography, her filmography, and I'm not very fam- not that I'm a huge uh, Turner Classic Movie guy, but uh, yeah, I don't recognize any of these.
1: Yeah, 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 me neither. But it's it's hot and cold. It's a crazy roller coaster ride, and Frank is failing. They're like he's he owes a bunch of people money. He owes the IRS money. Like things are really not going well, and this is probably leading to his partially his depressive state, but also they're always kind of on the outs. And so he doesn't know if it's going to last. It's sort of in the process of breaking up, but it's like a plane crash in slow motion. The big thing that happens right before this recording is he lobbies, he decides he needs a restart, right? And so he lobbies excessively and successfully to get another movie role. He's already been in a string of crappy movies, that went nowhere, that no one really cared about, and certainly where his acting was unnotable. But he reads this book, it was a popular book at the time, From Here to Eternity, and they're making a movie of it with Montgomery Clift and a bunch, Ernest Borgnine, as Sergeant Fatso Jetson. That's a little Simpsons reference there for it. <laughs> and he lobbies very successfully for that, to get into that, and he gets in there. And in fact... Um, I wanted to mention that in Mario Puzo's *The Godfather*, the horse's head in the producer's bed is is intended to be a reference to how Frank got the part in this movie. Really, it's completely unsubstantiated, but okay. Mario Puzo was talking about that guy in that character Johnny Fontaine in *The Godfather* is a Frank Sinatra stand-in. So actually, similarly, the way I didn't mention, but when Frank Sinatra was kind of eclipsing in fame the Tommy Dorsey orchestra. He was still under contract, and he had to get out of that contract. And who knows exactly how he strong-armed them out of the contract. Okay. So that scene is also mentioned in The Godfather, the offer that they can't refuse either your signature or your brains will be on the contract. Jesus. All totally unsubstantiated. Sure, but but it's it's fun. Adds to the lure. (laughs) But what is definitely substantiated is that Frank Sinatra definitely hung out with some seriously bad criminals. That was like a, that was definitely accurate. Okay. So whether they helped him anywhere or not, uh, unlikely. And they certainly didn't put a horse's head in anyone's bed. I'm pretty (laughs) confident that's been debunked. But that is, that was a reference to that. In fact, I think later Frank Sinatra came to blows with Mario Puzo, the author, over that because he really, really annoyed the shit out of him. Oh, wow. That came later. The book Godfather came out in like the 60s. Uh, But anyway, this movie from here to Eternity comes out and Frank ends up winning an Oscar.
0: What? best
1: supporting actor. How did I not know that? (laughs) <laughs> I know it's it's weird. These are really old movies. This is also from *Here to Eternity* is the one that has the famous scene where they're making out while the waves go over them. I've seen references. Yeah, a hundred. Well, Madonna's *Cherish* video was kind of a reference to that. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. But no, I actually haven't seen the whole movie either. But in, in any case, he wins this Oscar, and so he's kind of primed for a comeback. But at the same time, the relationship is completely flailing. He's super depressed about it. So what to do? He hooks up with a new arranger who works on this record with him. His name is Nelson Riddle. This guy is a failed trombonist who also actually was in Tommy Dorsey's band at a point, turned a ranger. Similar career pattern, by the way, to Quincy Jones, who like tried to be a jazz musician and then was like, I'm not good enough. I think I should be an arranger. (laughs) And that worked out. Right, right. Coincidentally, we brought up Nelson Riddle once before on the podcast, which is that he had a hit song when the first Elvis Presley record came out called Lisbon Antigua and that was what was on the radio when when that first Elvis some of those first Elvis hits were coming on. But in any case, I think Frank and Nelson Riddle really should be credited with like what's going on on this record. There is a separate producer mentioned, a guy whose first name is Voyle, which is a name I've never heard before. It's pretty awesome. But I don't get the impression that guy was really doing anything. So he hooks up with this guy to kind of refresh his career and to try to be forward thinking with music because music is shifting, right? He doesn't want to be, he's not a teeny bopper anymore. He's got to kind of find a new lane. And he also manages to secure a new record contract for so long. All those old forties recordings, he had been with Columbia records. He signs a new contract with Capitol records. And it's a good indication though of where he's at in his career because they don't give him the true hit maker contract price. They give him the new artist who might or might not make it Oh. price. Okay. okay. But he takes it. He wants a new home. He wants a fresh start. He's working with the new arranger. And they go in with depression in mind to make this album. So we're going to talk about first impressions momentarily. But I just wanted to follow up on what I talked about of the album and why this could reasonably be considered the first album as we first know it. What I mean by that is, it is the first collection of songs with a theme that unifies them, that are sequenced, meaning ordered, on the record very in a very conscious, meticulous way, and then printed to a 12-inch record. Keep in mind, the 12-inch record was still a very new technology. It had just come out in 1948. It was invented in 1948 and so
0: definitely was just making the circle bigger was considered an invention
1: (laughs) well i think it was the 33 and a third speed so even after it was invented it took a while to popularize it because people didn't have the player capability right sure sure everything was was 78s back in the day and what an album they did talk about albums before that but what it meant was literally a cardboard box with a series of 78s in them really yeah I had no idea. Almost like a bo- like what we think of as a box set now. Right. Although it had a similar amount of songs
3: to what we now think of as an album. Hmm. But they were disparate singles. I have one issue with this idea. And that is, is that these songs were already recorded, many of them, by many different people. He didn't write these songs. And sure. so, so, so to call it like a Frank Sinatra album and it'd be the first album, I get what you're saying, but... One thing I read is like, oh, this is the first concept album, and I'm like, okay, I guess. But to me, it seems like there's a big part missing, which is that songwriting, you know, unique new songwriting.
1: Well, it's a fair point, but let's say that, you know, Frank never wrote songs. That was just not his lane at all. And so, at that time, I think he was working within the constraints of the time, and in that sense, the record is more compiled like a jazz record would be, which is they're almost all from the Great American Songbook. In fact, the only one that is a new song, not written by Frank, but recorded for the first time for this record, is the title track. So there's a Duke Ellington song on here. There's a Cole Porter song on right, here. right? There's some stuff from old musicals, like, you know, stuff that was hits in the 1930s. And he's interpreting them. Hoagie Carmichael, who we love. <laughs> yes, Exactly. So, yeah, I hear you, but he he never really got to that point. That was just never his thing. His thing has always been about interpretation. And, you know, they talk about how Frank feels really strongly about this, but I imagine a lot of vocalists do, which is to properly perform a song as a vocalist. You need to embody the emotion behind it. You need to be able to relate to it, get in the headspace of it. And, you know, it's very, it can be very subtle, right? Right, totally. Okay, so I think I think where Frank was thinking was he was trying to innovate to a certain extent by creating a thematic journey. You know, in his mind, he was like, okay, well, this will be something that people can put on for 20 minutes and the vibe will be consistent. And that was a fairly new idea at the time. And I think also at the time, in those very early days of the 33 and a third size records, the only thing that was being printed to them was classical music which in Frank's mind might have kind of meant real art in quotes. Oh, okay. I'm speculating a little bit. I think he was thinking, oh, let me, how do I actually advance by creating real art, not just singles that are going to go in a jukebox?
0: Right. That's interesting, right? We. It's the jukebox, I mean, I guess every era is the jukebox singles era. Sure. But the time that, that he's coming out with this, you're right. If you're a singer and you're on the radio where you're cutting albums – you're definitely not writing your material. You know, everybody is covering. You know, the same set of 100 songs. It was funny yeah. looking at running through the list of tracks on here, and then you know, Wikipedia has also covered by, and it's a who's who. It's 30 artists on each. So to me, it felt a little bit like a battle of the cover bands, almost. You know, like who who did the best job. Uh, I I do appreciate what you're saying. I didn't really think along the lines of trying to create a cohesive experience across whatever it is the 36 minutes or something and that that may have been, yeah, maybe the first time that that type of thing had been done with some intention versus just here let's throw uh, you know 10 standards at the wall with the singer and see what happens.
1: Well, I think the reality of how stuff was released before and around this, And even for a time after, but we know kind of where it went, this became the more popular modality, is that they would go in for a session, they'd do, you know, four to six songs, and then maybe they'd get released at some point, totally disparately, or maybe they wouldn't, with no sense of ordering, no sense of continuity, you know, it just sort of didn't matter. Like, hey, how about this song? Okay, let's try that one, you know? (laughs) This is an example of him, at least, picking the songs intentionally, ordering them intentionally is so that so it maintained a vibe. And I, I just think that's the important context of, of understanding
3: this. But I wanna hear general impressions of the record. Overall I like the record because the themes contained within are relatable. You know, loneliness, despair, heartbreak. You know, it's like every human, no matter what your background is, kind of can understand these kind of ideas that this album revolves around. I think the lyrics are very clear. You can, when you listen to it, the music is beautiful in the background, but you really can hear the lyrics over everything, which I really appreciate. The, the songs are all the right length. They all have a nice you know, beginning, middle, ending. The orchestration and in, instrumentation is, is dynamite, and it has a really great cover art for the album, which I really, really, really liked.
1: That was another thing I didn't mention, was that the cover art was also maybe not unique, but definitely forward-thinking. Because most cover art at that time was just a picture of the singer on some kind of colored background. End of story. And the fact that Frank purposely chose to do a painting that kind of looks like a the cover of a noir novel. Exactly, maybe, yeah. From. Right. It has a color-based theme of blue, which fits the theme. So that was considered, it might have been one of the early sort of planned album covers in that Mm -hmm. sense.
0: I think it's of his left side. So I assume he paid the artist not to do the scar. (laughs) 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 He he put a horse in the guy's bed to make sure he didn't do that one. I would echo a lot of what Marty said. Overall, it's beautiful. By the end, I started to get a little tired. There were a couple songs where first listen through, I was hoping for some type of beat some movement, a little more up-tempo, never got it. So by the end of it, I, I was tired, like physically tired. Like it was putting me to sleep tired a little bit, you know, upon yeah. further listenings or upon further listens where I, you know, again, active listening, putting on the headphones, listening to the words. It's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful album.
1: Yeah. I, I, so I would, I would more or less agree. I think because these are picked from the Great American Songbook, the composition is generally really great. And so we can talk about that via the specific songs. These are just great songs. And I've in the last couple of years become more interested in finding those older that older style of songwriting, that composition style that is covered here. And so this this record had first come to me from my piano teacher who suggested these were a good place to, to A, to like listen to some classic American songbook songs, to get familiar with more of them, to see what I liked and see what I might like to. Attempt to learn or make arrangements of, and also uh, as an exercise in tracking melody because there are a lot of oh, really yeah. interesting melodies. Yeah. And in case anyone doesn't know, right, I don't know when this line in the sand occurred, but song, it seems like songs written before about 1950 ish, 55, before Elvis basically, were composed in this grander sense where the melodies weave in and out of the key. And there's these big chordal movements that jump all around. They don't really conform to anything specific. They're not obvious in sort of how they go or where the next change is happening. More like what we would maybe consider jazz. And these early jazz musicians, they were they were pulling from the same group of songs. In fact, a lot of these, have, you can find great jazz versions of them. We'll talk about some of those. Whereas then later, in the era of Elvis and beyond, where things became really blues-based, most melodies are some version of going up and down a major or minor scale directly. Right. And so there's just a a change. I like those melodies too. Don't get me wrong. But there's something really different about how these songs are structured, and that's it makes them a little more unexpected uh, to my ear. And you mentioned it was a put-you-to-sleep kind of record. I agree. I think it's a very mood record, and it's very like after midnight intended. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about the idea of background music and foreground music. I think if you're trying to listen to this super actively – it does feel like it goes on a little too long. Probably half, one record side is probably enough for me. But if you just put it on as a vibe in the background, it, it maintains a consistent vibe, which is kind of nice.
0: Yeah, all, all I could picture was wearing some you know 1950s gear and slow dancing with My Lady to every one of these songs. I know they're sad songs, but they just have that. And there's also an aspect to it where I only hear this music when i'm watching an old-timey movie right where they're likely doing you know dancing with each other or something so yeah it definitely created a vibe that yeah i dug but got got a little uh, tedious by the end
1: well so to, okay so two more things i wanted to mention about in general one is it's been alluded to but this is a great jumping off point to discover other versions of these same songs and getting yourself familiar with the great american songbook is a really rewarding experience because you're gonna be able to go find all the different jazz versions of these tunes. Sonny Clark doing Deep in a Dream, for instance, is like a favorite of mine. And, or Nina Simone sings Mood Indigo, the Duke Ellington tune. And there's just like, it's just a great jumping off point to like find Chet Baker does these tunes. So I, lo- I love Chet Baker. So I think that's cool. The second thing I wanted to mention is, and I was not really expecting this when I first turned on the record is that the fact that there's no mega Sinatra hits on it is good for me, right? It's not, It's not. Distra- sometimes those hits can be distracting. I don't really need to hear New York, New York, <laughs> right. right, at this yeah. point in my life. I just kind of, I could tune that out at
0: this point. So the fact that I, I'm unfamiliar with these tunes
1: is helping it for me.
0: Right, you appreciated it more as an end-to-end listen without the mega hit kind of exactly. knocking you off your focus, Yeah.
1: I think we mentioned it before, but it came out April 25th, 1955. It was recorded just a couple months earlier across a couple sessions in February and March 1955, and it reached number two on the U.S. Billboard charts where it stayed for 18 weeks. So it was wow. pretty pretty successful and really helped yeah. launch the second phase of Sinatra's career the sort of ring-a-ding
0: Sinatra that led all the way through the 60s and 70s, the Rat Pack Sinatra. Yeah, that's wild to think that that might not have existed without this album being a success.
1: He needed a big shot in the arm, and again, he's 40. Yeah. So it's not, it wouldn't be that weird if someone who was successful as a performer in their 20s just waned in the public consciousness and disappeared. But obviously Sinatra didn't. He kept making music and... Being one of the highest-paid entertainers in the world for the next three decades after this—that's crazy—and
3: to think about how many careers were launched in that same sort of style, that sort of Vegas. I mean, I can, I can only imagine Sinatra was the first guy to like you know headline Vegas for a month, you know. But you have you know Tony Orlando and all those other guys. <laughs> Dono, yeah, Dono, tiny bubble, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, it's a gem.
1: Okay, let's segue into talking about the specific tunes. So let's go back to In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning. We heard a little bit of it earlier, but let's drop into another spot now.
2: You'd be hers if only she would call In the wee small hours of the morning that's the time you miss her most
4: of all.
0: I mean, these guys were pros like the arrangement of this and the way you mentioned it earlier how the melody glides in and out of a chord pattern that i don't know if it actually changes key or if it just jumps but it does it so seamlessly and yeah it's just phenomenal i'd never heard this song before but upon first listen you know there are certain chord progressions and and chord changes that kind of make the hair on the back of your neck stand up and this had yeah. one of those where even the intro, it started. Now, I, I, as they were working through it, I'm like, "How the hell are they going to wind up back on the route?" And oh, 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 there you go. They did it through this very cool progression. So, yeah, th- this song is just top notch.
1: So as it happens, I learned this song pretty. Th- I studied it pretty thoroughly. Yes. As well as one of the other songs we're going to talk about, and you're right, it's a great example of that old style of composition primarily what's going on the melody keeps seems like it kind of keeps ascending and the chords are sort of going by whole steps you're going you're starting on a c you're going up to a d then you're going up to an e so you're effectively in the key of c but you're right they do this weird thing where they jump up to f sharp ah which is the you know it's the flat five of c that's kind of the that's where the melody and the chords go to give you this like sense of turnaround to get back there. It's, it's very it's very weird, but but one thing I wanted to mention too that I think any person can hear in there is how the use of chromatics. Before I really started digging into piano, which was fairly recently, I think I thought that chromatic movement, which is just literally like one key at a time on the piano, like all whites and all blacks, bing, 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 bing that it was the, the exclusive you only used it when you wanted to make weird sounds or something right but this one starts right off with chromatic movement in the strings descending from c and then even reversing itself it's just like something that on paper doesn't seem like it would go like it would make sense and his his melody's not doing that but the underpinning to it is too so it like it's just it's weirder than
0: you would think it would be and it sounds beautiful yeah That's good for you, by the way, learning this. I sat down and I was like, well, it starts on a C, it somehow winds up on a G, and then comes back to the C again. That's as far as I got. All the in-between stuff. I worked
1: on it with my piano teacher, to be fair. He helped me a lot with the arrangement. (laughs) But it was, but no, but in this case, it was like a, because the exercise was for me to like pick out bass notes and then pick out a melody and then try to find like a harmonization across those two things. Okay. And so like kind of together we crafted an arrangement of it. We should mention there's not a solo piano track in there. Exactly. There's a celesta, which we've previously talked about on the Monk episode, the Brilliant Corners episode. The mm-hmm. celesta is a it looks like a
0: piano, but instead of hitting strings you're hitting bells. That's the Mr. Rogers instrument. I totally. think in the yeah, okay. And the intro theme of the Mr. Rogers show, there's one of these instruments going. Okay. So you hear that cool tonality throughout this. So it it
1: sounds and plays like a piano, but it's I think it's right at the beginning of this track as well.
0: And man, does he make eight lines work. There are so few words in this song, but every one of them counts. And they're just really simple and well-written. And there's an, there's another song that I just absolutely love the lyrics to. This is a great start for lyric content of this album, right? Like, there's no lame imagery. I need, because this one was probably written, what, like you said, 15, 20 years prior.
1: No, this is the only one that was more recent. I don't know. Oh, okay. I got it. I think it it was written specifically for Frank or these sessions, but it had not been recorded yet.
0: Oh, okay. Okay.
1: And he heard it and was like, yeah, let's do that. That's a great theme. And that's why I put it first, right? All the other ones are probably. Average,
3: written back in 1930 and recorded for the first time back then. Right. It's funny because this, this song, of all the songs that we listen to and are discussing today, was the kind of least effective to me. The eight lines, kind of, you get through those real quick and, you know, it's just that doesn't quite do it for me. I, I read that the person who wrote this song kind of wrote it, you know, at the very end of a long writing session, played it for Frank Sinatra one time, Friend Frank Sinatra's like, I want to record that song. You mentioned earlier that he was the first person to record this song. And compared, maybe because it was the first time it was recorded, it in my opinion doesn't stand up to the to the rest of the songs on our selection. Interesting. Yeah, I have one, you, you know, it's a
1: it's a formatting problem with the whole way this is done, which is the all the songs are really short. Mm-hmm. And what's, I think, interesting about that is that if you go search any of these song titles on Spotify, you're mostly going to pull up jazz versions of these same tunes, which are, by design, way longer, right? Because they'll run through A, B on the chord sheet once with the melody, and then they'll go off into solos for however long it's going to be. Right, right. So it's funny to think how I'm, I'm giving it a backwards interpretation, which is not accurate. But it almost seems like the songs were written and the amount of lyrics that were written for these songs, which is to say not many, was intended for jazz to do that, to take them out, fill them out with these improvisations. That's not really true, but uh, they do feel like you're a little shortchanged because there's not more to go to. I have my other complaint about this one. I like this song, and is probably his most successful or well-known song on the record, perhaps because he recorded it first and thus it's most associated with him. But in between the singing sections, the arrangement of the strings is like so high pitched as to almost be grating. I think there's a lot of great subtlety throughout the record in terms of the arrangement, what the orchestra is doing or the strings, what the woodwinds or other instruments might be doing. In this case, I just found that a little, like, like it hurt my teeth just a tiny bit. Not that it's out of tune. I guess that's an Adam term for out of tune. <laughs> just that it's a little intense. Okay. I,
0: I, I can hear that listening back to it right now. Yeah.
1: All right. Let's move it right along to the next tune. And by some estimate, maybe the true jazz tune on the record, it's called Mood Indigo. You ain't been blue
2: No, no, no You ain't been blue Till you've had that mood hindered that feeling goes stealing down to my shoes
3: yeah this one immediately the arrangement stuck out you know i almost want to hear it without him singing on it because there's all kinds of cool rhythmic things happening there's parts that swing for like one bar yes, the, yeah, 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 yeah 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 picks up it comes out there's these weird like ascending and descending you know horn parts it's just really really cool i heard it first without you know going back and looking who wrote it and of course it's like Duke Ellington i'm like of course of course it's a duke ellington song like a jazz mastermind
1: right totally i think we also have to invoke the nina simone rule here which is that Nina Simone later covered this
0: song. So it became hers.
1: <laughs> oh, <that's, laughs> right. Oh, that's right, right. And it's like super up-tempo and swinging. And and yeah, it's hard to kind of unhear that for me. I actually thought this song was a little on the goofier side lyrically, and it made me wonder, I, although I like a lot of the instrumentation as well, like what Marty said, but it made me wonder if lyrics had been in it originally. But Duke Ellington, he didn't himself write the lyrics, but it looked like the early versions of Duke's versions uh, had singing as well. Uh, it's clever, songwriting, which is kind of what I would maybe expect from Duke Ellington. Like, you get it? It's beyond, it's bluer than blue can be. Like the rainbow. I don't know, maybe that's a kid's <laughs> yeah. joke, but just instrumentation-wise. Yeah, you mentioned the little one bar of swing with the piano triplet. And then I liked the tone of that, I don't know if it's a muted trumpet. It, it almost sounds like a trombone, but it makes me think he's like, because a lot of this is very cinematic, right? This orchestration. Oh, that's a
0: great word for it. Yes. Yeah. So
1: it gave me a real like walking in the rain, down in in an alley, in the dark, down a dark street kind of thing. Just something about the, the tone of that trumpet and it sounded very sad and forlorn to me.
2: Since my baby said goodbye
0: In the evening yeah, I totally, I, I totally know what you're talking about. I had a couple notes. So my, my first note was a guitar. How did that get in there? Like in the first five <laughs> seconds, they just plucked through a guitar. I think it was the only, maybe there was like back in the corner behind the 60 piece orchestra and they were like, Hey, grab that. This song, when I was just looking into it and thinking about how funny time works, right. And when he recorded this versus when this was, you know, I guess written. So the song is originally from 1930. Sinatra covers it in 1955. So that song was 25 years old when Sinatra covered it. It's the equivalent of me covering Closing Time by Semisonic and releasing (laughs) it in 2021 at the start of COVID. Like that's just to put time in perspective there. But I also, you were talking about finding other versions. If you can, there is a version of this that did pretty well by a group called the Norman Petty Trio. Did you stumble upon that by any chance? No. It is just so- something else. It's three people. I think it's a guitar and the three people sing and it's like a big ballpark organ like mm. baseball park organ It's just the most odd sounding thing in the world. So I, if you have a chance let's go listen to the Norman Petty Trio do this song and then appreciate what Sinatra does with it. <laughs> You ain't been blue
4: No, no, no
1: I was gonna, we should mention that these, the way all this stuff is recorded is in single takes with the whole band playing and singing all happening in the same room at the same time.
0: That's just crazy.
1: Right? So that yeah, yeah. it's important context because not that much stuff is made that way these days. But I, I was wondering if Adam, you were going to bring up, there's one line, I'm going to play the role of Tom here, where I had to play it back because I thought he might be out of tune so many times. But I think he's not. He goes, you ain't been blue. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't never
2: been blue.
4: <laughs>
1: I was like, did he hit the wrong note there? I'm how just, how I'm did not I sure. not pick that out? That's
0: very upsetting. I'm going to go back. No,
1: no. He probably, because listen, we haven't really talked about his voice yet. His voice is so silky smooth. It really is. And yeah. these melodies are not easy to sing. I assure you. They're, they're really complex. It's not the same as humming along to a Credence song, mm-hmm. you know, even though John Fogarty has his own vocal greatness, right? But the, the melody itself is just is like a roller coaster that dips and swings, and it's just hard to get it right.
0: Yeah, there, there are some songs that, obviously, like you said, he had the band backing him up, but there are some songs in this era where the melodies is very difficult to sing without accompaniment because they are all over the place. It's not just that blues scale ascending. It's jumping in and out of different modes and really cool stuff.
1: Yeah, you're landing in unexpected places. Okay, let's keep it rolling here and let's talk about the next tune we agreed to speak of. It's called Glad to be Unhappy.
2: Fools rushing, so here I am. Very glad to be unhappy I can't win But here I am More than glad to be unhappy
0: Before we start talking about this song, I think Rob should mention what he named the focus list that he shared with us this (laughs) week, which is just... (laughs) I called it Frank is Sad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And that that le- leads perfectly into this song. Glad to be unhappy. Look, it's another clever
1: little tune. It's, I want to say, Rodgers and Hart. It's from an old musical, which it, once you hear that, it, that kind of makes sense. I would say this one kind of grew on me. It felt a little gimmicky at first in its cleverness, the glad to be unhappy line. But I think I had sort of passed through this album a few times in the past but hadn't really given it a super deep, deep listen and hadn't really noted this song in the past. So I would say this is my favorite new tune I found. I liked it. And again, the Celesta, that bell piano, is featured as a little more of a less the rhythm track and more of a
3: response to Frank's vocals. It gets a lot of little nice little accents in there. That was cool. So wait, I felt like this song had a, lo- a lot of guitar. Am I mixing up instruments? Because I, I, I feel like when I listened, to it, I was like, wow, there's a lot, there's a lot of guitar in here. Like, well, it's almost even driven guitar- by guitar.
0: Yeah, there's some noodly guitar in here. I-, I think I wrote my prior comment first time through, so...
3: Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, hold yeah, up yeah, very yeah. well. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, other, the other thing that stuck to me about this song is just I kind of like... I kind of like a good, op- you know, in, in, in any song, I like a good opening lyric. And, the, and the, the first line of the song is, look at yourself. And, and immediately I was just like, all right, here we go. <laughs> we should mention
1: that the Mamas and Papas had a hit with this. Oh, nice. His tune. And more recently, I found
0: a version by that guy, Nels Klein. This song, you talked about the, the band, the orchestra, the piano player, everybody being in the room, and he's got a mic. And this song, to me, felt like, unless you were really in tune, uh, timing-wise, with the piano that if you try to tap this out, there is no rhythm. This is very freeform for like the first 45 seconds to one minute where he's singing, the piano's playing, they're playing off each other, but you can't count it out. There's Mm. no like 16th note click that you could find yourself landing on. It's very loose, but very well done. And obviously, when the song comes in, I think there's like a, an uh, upright bass that hits at like, you know, the 45 second mark. And that kind of establishes what the, what the beat will be, what the tempo will be. But yeah, I was just really blown away by how loose that intro and, and the lyrics over top of it were. So, really cool to think about them doing this in the room.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And another tidbit I read, you know, Frank himself wasn't technical when it came to production or even music, but he knew the studio really well. And I think he loved bossing people around also. So he definitely was in there moving people around. Oh, bass drums too boomy. Trombones need to play tighter together. You know, guitar player needs to step forward. I think he had a lot of influence in that sense. And...
0: Yes, yeah, so I just wonder
1: how they like strike the. I mean that that rhythmic thing must have been part of that.
0: Yeah, and I'm trying to picture what the studio looks like. I mean, they obviously didn't have a mic for every instrument. So if it's just everybody in the room, they do a take, they go listen to it. And to, Rob, you just said guitar step forward, we're literally stepping forward a little bit closer to the mic, right? <laughs> or maybe back a little bit. Like that's crazy because he's got to be up on the mic. But I don't know if they were still doing. I think they would have still been doing one mic recording wow that's just crazy even if they weren't even if there were just a couple but the fact that there's no real like <laughs> uh, ability to to temper like you're doing it in the room like you said the kick drum's too you know muddy or whatever okay go put it in the corner and put a blanket on it or something
1: right or like somebody literally has to step forward to take their solo so that right. they get louder yeah you know oh, you have awesome. cues like on a stage like in a stage play there's like masking
0: tape on the floor like go here <laughs> step here and don't play any harder than this
3: well there 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 are those famous uh Brian Wilson Beach Boys Pet Sounds sessions there it's like you know 18 cds long but that's what he's doing pet sounds he is he's literally telling each member what to do throughout each song you know uh timpani player instead of going boom boom ba doom go boom 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 ba doom like every little thing oh, having wow. horn players turning away have people step forward writing new bass lines changing bass lines so i imagine probably pick that up being a young musician around these types of people i'm sure that's what was going on Marty, if if Pet Sounds comes up, you're gonna host that one. No, right? oh, yeah. <laughs> I've I've listened to that album a kajillion times. Right.
1: <laughs> okay, let's keep it rolling. To do deep in a dream. I
2: dim all the lights and I sink in my chair. The smoke from my cigarette climbs through the air. The walls of my room fade away in the blue, and I'm deep
0: in a dream of you. Another song where they they don't do it like this anymore, where it's a story all compacted in to a, what is it, two and a half, two minutes and 50 seconds or something like that and it's completely self-contained and it's it's a story there's a guy he's falling asleep with a cigarette in his hand he dreams of his woman and you know he still can't have her in his dream and he wakes up because the cigarette has now burned down and is burning his finger but it's not his finger that hurts it's his heart i'm like oh my <laughs> god you did this like musically and lyrically so well in in under three minutes so just fantastic writing on this one
3: yeah my, my comment is exactly the same C- cool cool lyrics the the smoke from a, the cigarette turns into a staircase which is you know lover yeah, walks yes. down I, I, same idea it's 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 definitely a cool story style of lyric writing that you don't see a lot of uh done this well today
1: Yeah, it really paints a visual picture. I noted the exact same line you just mentioned, Marty. Smoke makes a staircase for you to descend. So this is my favorite track. This is the other one I learned a version of on piano and kind of studied pretty closely. So it's I I love the melody, how it ascends. It starts with this thing where it's moving by fourths. So it's like B-flat, E-flat, A-flat, which is just weird chordal movement. That's just the beginning of the song. And then in the bridge like the basically the center note of the whole thing is an f like it's where the melody starts but for the bridge they start on an f sharp chord and they somehow work it back to work oh my god yeah it's pretty dope it's pretty dope it's it works as a great jazz song this is the one where that dude that piano player sonny clark has a really awesome version of this that i totally recommend you go listen to so, yeah, this, this is my favorite just in terms of, yeah, the melodic progression and kind of how it moves. And like you said, the lyrics, I think, are really great. Relate to it right away. I wanted to mention, too, we didn't say that Sinatra insisted on doing all his sessions at night because he felt that his voice was best. The voice was best at night. I don't know if he was referring to himself in the third person or not, but (laughs) but he's like, no, we got to do this after dark 100% of the time. And he was real stickler. Like sometimes apparently he'd come in for a session and after a few notes, he'd be like, nope,
0: it's not right. We're out of here. This this (laughs) is done. Insane. The golden pipes aren't warmed up. They'll be ready tomorrow. Go home, guys. And all 60 members of the orchestra. (laughs) Drink some Jack Daniels. Get back to you. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Okay, well, we can round it out with the last one we agreed to talk about, which is what is this thing called love?
2: What is this thing called love?
1: Yeah, so I think my goal here, I had a hard time picking, like, a true low point here, and so I didn't, really. I like all these songs in a somewhat equal way. I picked stuff that I thought was representative of the instrumentation, the writers that were being represented, and thus the eras that were being represented. So this is a Cole Porter tune. And I thought it just had this very specific, I don't know Cole Porter's work as well, but I do know Gershwin's work pretty well. It reminded me a lot of like Rhapsody in Blue, like in terms of how it was, how it was put together.
0: Totally hear that. Yeah, there are some key chord movements that do this. uh, Yeah, yeah, it's very Porgy and Bess sounding. Right. Like there's a I don't want to call it a theme. Well, maybe it is, where 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 the chords jump up by a whole step and then work their way back down by a half step. Yeah. And it does that a couple of times and it's this kind of weird, eerie, sultry, dark, smoky feeling. It's odd to describe music as smoky. But yeah, that's that's the vibe I got from this.
1: Yeah. And for another version of this, by the way, if you I don't know, who's a fan of jazz here, but that very short lived Clifford Brown, Max Roach, Sonny Rollins. Group oh, did yeah. a version of this, okay. fucking rips Clifford Brown from Delaware, by the way, who sadly died young in a car crash. And but that,
3: yeah, that uh, that group is hopping and it's a great version, yeah. Kind of the, the song kind of has a kind of a, a, ho- a horn line that happens a couple of times that's a little out of place, but I, I just couldn't not hear the main horn line from George Michael's Careless Whisper. <laughs> if you if if you if you just rearrange that 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 horn line a, a, a little bit, oh, you ruined it! I'm never going to not hear listen that. Listen to now. it. Listen to Thank it. You. Listen to it again well. later, and just just picture that. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Robbie
0: talked about being a low point. He also has a super low note at the 42 second mark that I really appreciate his his low range. He sounds great when he hits those super low notes.
2: This funny thing called love.
1: Yeah, I agree. He's, I mean, it just, it feels cliche to even mention it, but he's just a master of tone and feel. And I think he is a real perfectionist of how it's gonna go. I didn't I think all these songs were probably produced over the course of like a total of five or six recording days, which may not seem like a lot, but when you think about it, it's just the band doing takes every time. You know, he wanted to get it right and he wanted to pick the right songs to fit the mood. The the timestamp I noted was the little lead-in that turns him back around to him singing a cappella. I think it happens at like 144. I thought that was a pretty hip little thing.
2: That's why I ask the Lord.
1: Yeah, that is cool. Cool. All right. I reckon we've gabbed enough about Mr. Frank Sinatra, the chairman of the board, and we hope to revisit him again in his later career someday in the future because i think he does have a couple other albums on the list from his latter career but we are done talking about it in the wee small hours of the morning so all that's left for us to do is to vote on whether or not you actually must hear this before you die adam what say you
0: yeah i think rob you provided some really good context my first walkthrough through. I really just thought this was sleepy. Upon subsequent listens and active listening, I really started to appreciate it more. And with the context that you provided about where this stands in music and and potentially creating the helping to create the concept of the album, I will say that unlike the horse's head in your bed, you do need this in your life. So I'm going to say that it's a yes.
3: You need to hear this. Thank you, sir. Marty, what say you? I've done a few of these now, and this is the earliest record that I've that I've been a part of and I just found it really interesting that this was happening in the mid 50s and and hearing the whole his whole timeline it's just kind of mind blowing that someone can can meet you know rise like a meteor this little short skinny guy can like rise like a meteor without any like serious background in music to become this just like absolute superstar have some bumps in the road and then come back with this this hit album. And so, you know, I absolutely think that 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 this is an album that, that people need to listen to, without a doubt. Excellent. Well, I'm going to
1: round it out and make it unanimous. No big surprise here. I think it's a must to listen. I think it's another example of something that, when Dymery was compiling this book or thinking about the idea for this book, this had to have been one of the first things he thought about. Because, as we made clear, it's an early example of this art form called the album perhaps the first example of it and so much uh, i think came from that on top of that i think it's an enjoyable listen and if you only know sinatra for the sort of mega hits that you're probably a little tired of new york new york's the only one that comes to mind but i know there's like 17 others that i just don't want to hear right now
0: all the christmas hits that are just looping on the radio all the christmas in December. I was, yeah right. i was
1: i almost said my way but i don't really feel that way about my way I just haven't heard it quite enough, and it's still a pretty well-constructed song. But right. in any case, I think it's nice sometimes to not only go back in time, understand the context, and get your mindset in that in that place that we talked about where he's trying to make a comeback and where he's really upset and th- even thinking about killing himself. He tried multiple times. We only talked about one. He, tried, uh, he almost shot himself one time. He shot like a hotel pillow instead. Jeez. He probably cries for help, admittedly. But he was really bummed out, and he even called this the Ava meaning the Ava Gardner album while he was making it. And their marriage was very soon to disintegrate. So for all those reasons, plus it's enjoyable, I think
0: you should listen to it. Nice. Congrats, Frank Sinatra. Congrats, Frank. R.I.P. late great. R.I.P. That's
1: right. That's right. Okay. So I think all we have left to do is to spin the old Albinator and find out what we're going to be listening to, what our homework is for next week. Tom has graciously put the albinator out on loan it uh, is wearing a fedora and (laughs) smiling mischievously with its huge penis at me right now (laughs) we're gonna give it a spin so without further ado next week we will be listening to oh
0: the artist is van morrison all right and the
1: record is astral
0: weeks Ooh, baby! All right, All right. I've never. I, I am. I am the guy who knows Moon Dance and whatever his big hit is, so I, I know nothing about Van Morrison.
1: You know, I know this one too. It is. It is great, but I have a feeling there's going to be some things to nitpick also. <laughs> so it should Excellent. be a good. One. Should be. Should be fun. But Van. Van Morrison, great artist, important artist, no no doubt about it. So we look forward to that. We hope that you listen along with us, dear listeners. And if you have any thoughts about our retelling of Frank's story up to in the wee Small Hours, please shoot us a quick email over at 1001 complaints at gmail. We'd love to hear from you if you want to add to that story, some tidbits, you want to tell us more about the songs, or you want to yell at us for getting it all wrong, we're open to all of it. Send that email our way. So, for this week on 1001 Album Complaints, I've
0: been Rob. I'm Adam. And I'm Marty. Start spreading the boom.
4: Ooh, baby.